Hi, everyone. Welcome to today's podcast, which we are producing from Macquarie Student Writers Festival. My name is Jasmine. I'm an English literature student at Macquarie University, and I'm here today with Jimmy to discuss the fascinating genre of Indigenous futurism. Hi, Jimmy. Hi, Jasmine. I would like to start by acknowledging that we are recording from the lands of the Darug Nation. I also acknowledge the traditional custodians of the various lands which you are all listening in from today. I pay my respects to elders both past and present and extend, extend that respect to any Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people listening in today. Today, we will be exploring Indigenous futurism through the lens of two young adult novels by Indigenous authors, Terra Nullius by Claire G. Coleman and The Interrogation of a Shayla Wolf by Amberlyn Quaymalina. Terra Nullius is a story of colonization and displacement that is both recognisable and foreign at the same time. It is set in the future at a time where Australia is being colonised by humanoid aliens. But readers aren't made aware of this until halfway through the book. Up until this point, readers are positioned to believe they are reading about the historical colonisation of Indigenous Australians. The Interrogation of a Shayla Wolf is the first book of the Tribe trilogy set in a post-apocalyptic world after the reckoning, an environmental catastrophe. Ashayla Wolf is the protagonist and one of the several people with supernatural abilities that are outlawed by their government and labelled as illegals. She is interrogated and held in a detention centre where she plots her rebellion to escape, free other illegals and return to the tribe in the first wood. Yeah, so I think this is a this is a really interesting uh, subgenre of science fiction that I hadn't encountered before. This, so uh, thank you, Jasmine, for bringing this to our attention. I'm actually really fascinated by the genres because I, I did read these two books and it got me thinking about well, what exactly is this genre trying to do, and what are some of the defining features of the genre? So, Jasmine, can you start by maybe explaining to us what exactly is uh, Indigenous futurism, or you know, what is your understanding of this really, really fascinating new genre? Yeah, of course. Much like you, this was something I had not encountered before. I had not heard the word Indigenous Futurism before. Um, but Indigenous Futurism was a term coined by Dr. Grace Dillon in 2003. She defines it as an interdisciplinary analytical framework, bringing together media, arts and literature in order to re-examine how science fiction can be a productive genre for expressing Indigenous perspectives and experiences. This, I think, is really important as depictions of Indigenous people in mainstream media often position them in a historical context. And this may be as disadvantaged people who are victims of colonisation, marginalisation and oppression. And this depiction is problematic as it fails to recognise the Indigenous cultures and individuals of today and the future, which is what Indigenous futurism does. It is empowering for Indigenous peoples as it challenges colonialism and recognises Indigenous peoples as protagonists, leaders, agents for change in contemporary and futuristic scenarios. Indigenous futurist writers draw from worldviews shaped by their ancient cultures. They reimagine traditional storytelling to express themselves and their culture in different ways. In literature, Indigenous futurism allows us to imagine Indigenous peoples in every context. This may be fantasy worlds or space travel and so much more. 
Yeah, and I think this is a really interesting uh, point to keep in mind about Indigenous futurism because um, a lot of time when we think about uh, Indigenous literature or, you know, we can't help but associate it with Indigenous history. And we always tend to like to place um, Indigenous people within their past and never sort of consider them, I suppose, within a contemporary or futuristic worldview. And sci-fi is, uh, in a way, one of the most interesting genre to uh, place that in because we're now seeing Indigenous uh people, as you say, operate within a contemporary world and act in roles other than, you know, being victimised, you know, which is a lot of times, you know, what happens. So we now see them uh, as being part of community and not simply part of community, but leaders, you know, within communities too. And we, I think we see that most clearly uh, in, the, in the two novels that we're discussing today. So can you talk more, I think, a little bit uh, about some of the main characteristics of Indigenous uh, futurist literature? Yeah, so Indigenous Futurist literature engages with things like environmental collapse, technological advancement, and higher power control. And this is often done in post-apocalyptic settings. Um, it's important to keep in mind that the stakes and value of post-apocalyptic post settings are heightened when engaging with Indigenous narratives, as in a matter of speaking, Indigenous Australians do actually live in a post-apocalyptic state. In Indigenous futurist literature, time is often non-linear. So this reflects the Indigenous understanding of time as a circular evolving concept. And there is a sense of community, acceptance, belonging between characters in a world in which racism is diminished, the colour of your skin does not matter, and everyone is connected by their humanity. Um, but most importantly, the defining feature of Indigenous futurism is that it draws upon Indigenous cultures, worldviews and perspectives. Indigenous knowledge, understanding and experience are embedded throughout these texts. Yeah, um, I, I think that's a really important point to, to keep in mind, this idea that um, what separates, I suppose, um, Indigenous futurist literature from uh, your typical sci-fi, for example, would be the fact that it is through this Indigenous cultural worldview that you mentioned. Um, so can you maybe explain that a little bit more? So how do these novels draw upon these Indigenous cultures um, and, and their perspectives? Yeah, definitely. So Terra Nullius draws on Indigenous perspectives in a very explicit and apparent way, whereas the interrogation of a Shayla Wolf does this in a more subtle way, more implicitly. Um, Claire G. Coleman in the author's notes states that the novel was influenced both shallowly and deeply by Indigenous Australian survival narratives and works of post-colonial historical fiction. And you can see that as you're reading the text. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that's that, that's actually really obvious when, when you read the text, because I think you know, those who have read it, not to give spoilers, but those who have read it will know that in the first half anyway, it actually kind of feels like a historical work. And so that influence, I think, is, is really clearly seen. Yeah, exactly. And the novel is a direct parallel of the British invasion and colonisation of Australia. So, And it's done in such a way that, as you said, in the first half of the novel, readers are positioned to think that they are reading about this event. They're reading historical realism. But that's not actually the case. The novel is set in a future Australia, a future Earth, where aliens have colonised the human race. And in the novel, the aliens are referred to as settlers or toads. So that's why we may not realise this until halfway through the text. 
whereas the humans are referred to as natives. Now, when Common uses this terminology native, she does it in a way that recognizes Earth as home for humans, as a space that they inhabit and belong to. On the other hand, the terminology toad, which is really interesting, is perhaps a reference to the cane toad, which is an invasive species introduced into Australia to com combat cane beetles, but instead preying on native insects and causing more harm to the ecosystem than good. Yeah, and you can also, I think, see um, just from the terminology alone that, you know, she is referring to the past, you know, that, so that's what the, um, the British called themselves when they came to uh, Australia, they called themselves as the settlers and they referred to, you know, the Indigenous population then as the natives. Uh, and so in a way, what Colm is doing is, you know, she's um, appropriating those um, terminologies and setting them now in a futuristic setting uh, where now the world is colonised, so to speak, and so the, the aliens are then the settlers, they're taking on the same role uh, as the British and the, uh, the humans, in this case, then are referred to as the natives in the same way that the, the settlers refer to them you know, in that context. So I think you can see that terminology really, really clearly um, reflected in the history of colonisation itself. Yeah, definitely. And this is a world in which the natives have mostly been massacred and the ones that remain are slaves or servants to the settlers. It's a world in which native children have been taken away from their parents to be educated in schools run by settlers. And it's a world in which natives run away from their jobs or their schools and are hunted by trackers and severely punished when found. So you can really see how this is a parallel um, with the past. So the novel moves through various perspectives both native and settler, and each chapter begins with an unexpectedly fictionalised excerpt or made-up quotation from a historical document. Some of these provide a glimpse of hope for the natives. They detail possibilities of a world in which aliens and humans can live in harmony. And I'll give you an example. One excerpt reads, Learn to live in harmony with us as Europe once learned to live in harmony with the rest of the world. We have something to offer you. If nothing else, you can learn from our difference as we can learn from you. So there's hope in this excerpt and hope is a theme that we see throughout the whole novel. We see it in Esperance, a native whose name literally means hope in French, and also Johnny, a settler or a toad who accepts and appreciates the native friends that he makes. Yeah, and, and I just want to stop for a minute then and think about or discuss rather the, the quotes that appear at the beginning of each chapter, one of which you, you just sort of cited there. Um, I, I don't know about you, but it took me a moment to um, think about the, the quotes because I, I always assumed that these quotes were actually historical quotes you know that they were taken from absolutely yeah, yeah. actually historical documents because that's how, that's how they actually they, they read they're, they're so well written that they actually read like historical documents and the nature of what they're writing about uh, refers very very specifically to those sort of past colonization um, events but can also work really effectively I suppose you know in terms of uh, looking at the alien invasion itself it is until the latter half of the novel where the quotes become much more obviously about human and alien you know, interaction, where some of the earlier ones, um, they did feel quite historical. And I remember reading in the um, afterwards uh, from the author there that one of the quotes, I believe, um, 
was inspired, uh, most of the quotes are inspired by historical documents, but one was lift, uh, was taken very closely to a historical document, but the rest were pretty much made up. Um, and, and I think it's a testament to her writing that the made up stuff actually felt so real. Yeah. I thought I was actually reading real documents. I mean, the, the kind of racist ideas that were coming out of um, some of these quotes, you um, you can't help but parallel, you know, uh, parallel with the uh, historical past, I guess. Yeah, absolutely felt the same. And I think she's really done a good job in making us believe that we're reading about this event as history. And it isn't until halfway through the novel that we stop and go, hang on, this isn't quite what we think it is. Yeah, and, and I think that um, that kind of hybridity that you were mentioning earlier uh, comes into effect with um, that other thing that you were talking about in terms of the um, uh, the symbolism of hope itself, uh, and especially in the character of Esperance. You know, Esperance, um, as far as we know, is uh, most likely an Indigenous character. At least I read it that way. Did, did you read it that way? Yeah, yeah, I did. Yeah, I, I think I think that part was made obvious, but I wasn't one hundred percent sure. Uh, and yet she takes on uh, a foreign name. She takes on a name that comes from a French origin. You know, mm. uh, and so in a way, it kind of shows that uh, that hybridity um, in culture that the the world population in in the future no longer separates humans into cultural you know, groups. They are all one group, and that's really beautifully symbolised by Esperance, whose name means hope, but who's you know indigenous in nature, but you know taking on board some yeah. foreign aspects as well. Yeah, it's this idea of being connected by humanity. Yeah. Um, and so we've got a Shayla's world, on the other hand, that is defined by a distinctly Indigenous perspective. We've got the balance in the novel, which is the inherent harmony between each other and the earth, which is a clear reflection of Indigenous understandings and beliefs. We've got the land that is not called or recognised as Australia, but it remains country as recognised in Ashela's relationship with the first wood. The first wood is not just her sanctuary or her home. It is a sentient being that Ashela speaks with and to whom she has a reciprocal relationship. Ashela identifies herself and her friends as a tribe and each member has a forest name reflective of the animal that they have a particular connection to. And I found that really nice. We've got Ashela wolf, Amber crow, Georgie Spider, and we've also got Jazz, who develops a connection to the source, fantastical creatures, which I imagine a dinosaur looking. Is that the same for you? Yeah, definitely. I mean, um, it, it took me a little while to try and imagine what they were because I wasn't quite sure initially about the size of them. Uh, and so for a while there, I thought they were actually goannas. Uh, that's how I was imagining them. <laughs> and then as the size of them starts to become much clearer, I thought that they must be like giant goannas or something like that. So I was thinking of like these almost um, gigantic Komodo dragons or, you know, a dinosaur would be probably the closest to it. But I think it's a, it's a wonderful um, invention or a wonderful creature uh, that comes up. But I think the other thing that you, you also mentioned, which um, I, I think highlights this idea of um, the Indigenous worldview or perspective, uh, in his works is the fact that, you know, um, this novel, much more apparently so than uh, with Terranalius anyway, is very implicitly that worldview. So everything you get is um, implied rather than made explicit through the historical comparison that we see in Terranalius. With this one, um, that sense of uh, hybridity, we can sort of see symbolised in the country itself. So I think at one stage the country was described as um, due to the, the global catastrophe as almost combined into one country. 
So it's almost taking them back to the past, to the you know, prehistorical past of um, that supercontinent um, that we refer to as Pangaea, yeah. which all other continents have sort of split up. So now all the continents have been combined again. So we get this wonderful fluidity of time that, you know, that the past and the future are blending together in, in these really beautiful ways. And, you know, what you were talking about there with that kind of connection with nature is seen through that. Um, and even though it's a futuristic world, there are definitely elements of the past coming in through it uh, too, especially with that special relationship with animals. You know, we often associate that more with fantasy, um, the fantasy genre rather than the science fiction genre, which is heavily steeped in the past. And so we get that beautiful um, uh, circularity of time rather than that kind of linear time structure that's implied in the narrative rather than made uh, explicit. And I think that's a, a really good way to, to represent um, this, this kind of indigenous worldview. And one other uh, thing that we also see in these two novels that I think is also a really clear trope uh, that happens within sci-fi or some, you know, science fiction work is the use of lingo and specific terminology. So we talked about these kind of specific terminology in, in the use of the words natives and, and settlers. Um, and this is something that's actually really common in science fiction. It's a way of you know, building up those worlds. So if you think about texts such as um, uh, you know, Do Androids Dream of uh, Electric Sheep, where the, the word android is, is used in place of robots. In, in the movie version, you've got replicants used as a terminology. Uh, in H.G. Wells, the, the time machine, you've got things such as the Eloi and the Morlocks represent different cultures and different species, you know, which are essentially human, but they've just sort of split off into different species. So we see these terminologies uh, used to build these worlds and, and kind of enriches the, the reader's experience um, by giving them really, really complex ideas, really complex cultures and or new cultures and characters to, um, to work with. But the other thing that we also see, I think, is the interplay between power in the way that terminologies uh, are used to represent groups. So we discussed this you know, briefly in terms of the, the use of the word natives and settlers. So natives has a kind of a, a lower power status and you know, settlers have a, a higher power status. So the novels are kind of implying that in, in the works of Terranalis anyway. But I think that's a really, really dominant theme in both of these novels, you know, this idea of power and control. So can you maybe talk a little bit about the way power and control is utilised in these two novels and, you know, how they're actually utilised? Yeah, definitely. So in both texts, I think we see technology as an instrument through which power and control is gained. Um, and therefore, it is a source of anxiety in both worlds. In Terra Nullius, the aliens and their advanced tech technology control the natives. Whereas in A Shayla Wolf, the government controls illegals and you've got the machine that attempts to control a Shayla. And that's also a really interesting um, example there, what you talked about in terms of that terminology you know, aspect. So illegals as <laughs> a terminology, which is rich with association when something is illegal, obviously they don't fit in to society. So to call these people um, illegal is to say that they don't belong in the society, which means that they, you know, they are of a lower power status than the, the what's the term they use um, for the people who are officially part of, of the government? I can't, I can't even remember anymore. Citizens. 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 Yeah. yeah. And, and isn't that a, a much, you know, and isn't that quite ironic because that's the kind of term that we used in our society too. They reflect very much our society when somebody is criminal or illegal. Um, they don't have that legal status of being a citizen and all the privileges that go with being a citizen as well. So I think that's a really, really interesting point to, to keep in mind. 
Yeah, the government in A Shayla Wolf uses labels to separate the other. Like you said, the illegals are distinct from citizens, and that's due to their supernatural abilities. However, they can apply for exemptions if their ability is deemed passive and non-threatening. Yeah, and, and again, we've, we've got wonderful terminologies thrown in there. Again, exemptions, you have to apply for exemption. How do you apply to exempt yourself from a very human aspect of who you are? What you really want to, or what they're suggesting that they're exempting themselves from or asking for exemption for, is the fact that they're not dangerous or you know, proven to be dangerous, or rather the fact that they can be easily controlled is what exempts them and allows them to enter into this, you know, this state of citizenship, I suppose. Yeah, exactly. And I think it's actually really interesting because the terminology of exemption is a reference to the exemption certificate in the Aborigines Protection Amendment Act 1934. And this act enabled an Aboriginal person to argue they should no longer be deemed an Aboriginal person or a person with Aboriginal blood therefore escaping the provisions of this act and gaining access to the benefits of Australian citizenship. Yeah, so effectively, you know, not labelling them as other, you know, and uh, allowing them into the category of humans, you know, so... Yeah, or citizens. A, yeah, which is quite an appalling um, situation, but, you know, it, it is referring to a past of ours. Yeah. Um, you've got in a Shayla Wolf the novels, central villain, Chief Administrator Neville Rose, who intends to capture Ashela's tribe of illegals. He is a reference as well to A.O. Neville, Western Australia's Chief Protector of Aborigines. So he was the legal guardian of every Aboriginal child in Western Australia to the age of 16, and he had the power to remove Aboriginal children from their families and place them in work. So I just found it really interesting how Quay Molinard uses these real-life um, scenarios from the past um, as references in her novel. Yeah, and, and these are the kind of um, direct parallels or, or rather implied parallels, you know, we, we talked about earlier there, the, the fact that, you know, I, I don't think it was an, an accident that uh, his name is also Neville, you know, it's not a common name to to come across uh, and and his status or his role reflects the role of the you know the real life you know, A.O. Neville that you were referring to there um, as well so I think there's there is those direct parallel direct comparison and the fact that they were children as well you know that he's hunting these children he's trying to um, uh, re-educate I suppose these students in the, in the very same way that the historical Neville did so. Yeah I'm um, going back to the sort of power and control that we see through the use of technology. In Terranalius, there is this constant talk of aliens not being more intelligent, but being more technologically advanced. Um, for example, here's a quote from the native perspective. Person to person, we are stronger than them, faster than them, and we have the advantage of local knowledge. We are no less intelligent than them, might even be smarter on an individual level, where they beat us consistently is in technology and the unrelenting, merciless, largely impersonal application of force. So we can see how the settlers' technology puts them at such an advantage to the natives. And so then we've got the machine in the interrogation of the Shayla Wolf, which is a technological device that Neville Rose uses 
to reveal memories and secrets, particularly the location of Ashela's illegal tribe so that they can be captured. Um, this is really interesting as well because in Indigenous cultures, memories and storytelling are highly important. It is their primary means of passing down knowledge, beliefs and history through generations. So maybe Quay Mullina was trying to do something there in bringing that to light. Yeah, I think she's also making a direct parallel between the way that machines dehumanises us um, by trying to, I suppose, you know, replace our memories as well. So if you say, you know, as you said, our memories connect us and makes us human, then these machines, which are absolutely horrific in the way that the novel describes them, kind of rips the memory from these people um, in a very painful manner, uh, as if the memory is inextricably you know, connected to their identity and, you know, to, and to who they are. So after a session you know, with, with these machines, uh, we see a Shayla is physically and mentally exhausted by you know, the, the event, and in, in some cases, almost comatose um, from having these memories ripped out of her and, and forced to, to view them in a very, very unnatural way. And I think what it also represents is this idea that machines have been used to um, gain control over people, and, and especially you know, when, uh, when we talk about colonization uh, in particular, that technology has been used to, um, uh, as, a, as a powerful force, an unnatural force, but a powerful force that comes about and um, enslaves one group to another group. I think the other thing that it also brings into effect um, is this other trope that we see in, in these two novels as well, uh, which is the way that um, the environment or the climate is affected you know, by uh, the kind of changes wrought about by humans. And I think uh, one of the things that Indigenous futurism uh, is connected to is another subgenre, and again, another relatively new subgenre in sci-fi, which is you know, um, uh, kind of very cutely referred to as cli-fi, which is climate uh, fiction. Uh, and these fiction often refer to or um, a response to human-induced climate change. So they often look at climate change and, and the way that humanity has uh, affected the climate in a way that brings about an apocalyptic event. Uh, we see this really, really clearly in A Shayla Wolf, I think, you know, the fact that um, something, and we're not quite sure uh, what actually happens, but we, we know that we get traces or we get clues about what actually happened uh, in this uh, event, which they call the reckoning. Uh, but we know that it is human um, uh, induced, you know, that humanity has actually caused this huge apocalyptic uh, event. Another thing that I think also connects these things together is that uh, social inequality is often seen as the connective tissue or the cause for these apocalyptic events and for this, um, for the climate change uh, to occur as well. So we see this as um, an effect of the past, because this is actually now set in the future. So one of the things I suppose um, we need to then explore then is through the Indigenous perspective that we talked about earlier that um, Indigenous futurism looks into, how do you see uh, the environment um, as being depicted in, in these novels? Uh, and, you know, what exactly is the role, I suppose, of environmental catastrophe in these two novels? Yeah, so in both texts, the natural environment is depicted in contrast to technology. Technology is depicted as controlling, repressive, dehumanizing, whereas the environment is thought of as home, 
and characters find a sense of freedom returning to nature. For example, Jackie in Terranolius running away from the mission camp into the bush where he feels safe. Um, one point that we should also probably keep in mind, um, I think one of the misconceptions that a lot of people have when we talk about nature, um, and especially when we, we apply the term safety to nature, is that uh, nature is a safe space. But the Indigenous perspective, I think, is really interesting because it doesn't romanticise nature as a safe space. So the example you were talking about there where Jackie's running you know, into the desert, we see the desert as actually quite a hostile environment um, and it causes deaths. Um, and in fact, you know, most people try to avoid you know, going into the desert for that particular reason. But it is home in a very unique way, you know, as, as Jackie you know, um, sort of explains. And, you know, um, it's home because it represents freedom. And we see, I think, the same thing in Shayla Wolf as well, that the forest that they live in isn't a safe space. It isn't like a, a paradise, but it's actually filled with very, very dangerous creatures that could kill you and will kill you if you're not careful. You know, so what it shows, I think, from an Indigenous perspective is a, a healthy respect for the environment that's often missing from the kind of settler's perspective or the alien perspective where they see it as just simply a hostile environment and they don't treat it with the kind of respect. Uh, and we see that uh, as, in a way, what we are doing, you know, we contemporary humans are doing to our world as well. We don't quite treat it as um, with the kind of respect that is there. We, we are quite hostile towards it and we kind of you know, destroy it in, in our hostility. Yeah, and this danger that you're talking about, you can see that in Terranolius and the way that the settlers respond to the environment. The environment is dangerous to them. They cannot survive these hot conditions of Australia, of the land that the natives are living in. And this highlights that the only way to survive is to respect the land and the people whose knowledge intertwine with it. Johnny demonstrates this in Terranalius. He is a settler and he only survives in the bush because of the natives that accompany them. He even says these grey fellas, because the aliens have grey skin, they don't much like the hot and the dry. They like it even less than the white fella do. Again, that's a reference to the British colonisers. And it's also, I think, a reference to the, the harsh reality of nature. If you know how to you know, live with nature rather than live against nature, which is what um, a lot of the alien invaders or um, um, these settlers are doing, uh, then nature kind of punishes them, I suppose, in, in very harsh ways. So, so we see Johnny suffering quite extensively because he's he's not built to um, biologically anyway. He's not built to survive in in the desert. He needs constant moisture or constant liquids, you know, in order to replenish himself. And obviously, the desert's not a place to find that. But if you uh, um, are familiar with the landscape, then you know ways of finding water, even in a place that's seemingly devoid of water. We see that, you know, quite clearly in Terranolius. Um, what about in um, Ashela Wolf? You know, um, can, can you talk a little bit about um, just the kind of environmental situation in, in Ashela Wolf? So we know that Ashela Wolf is set 300 years after the reckoning. And as you said, we don't actually hear much of this event, but we know that it's an environmental disaster. We know that Ashela's world is one in which the tectonic, the tectonic plates have shifted to create one single continent, as you said, this referencing the prehistoric Pangaea. 
Yeah, so I, I think from this sense, we get to see that, you know, the environment plays a huge factor, both as a, um, almost like a character, I think, in, in both these novels um, in itself, but they're definitely a, a theme uh, within the, the text. Uh, and they also represent that kind of Indigenous perspective or Indigenous worldview. Yeah, and when you talk about environmental catastrophe, I think in Terra Nullius, the environmental catastrophe is the fact that the native environment, their home, has been invaded and it's no longer theirs. Whereas in Ashela Wolf, it's depicted very differently where the environmental catastrophe is this event. It's the reckoning. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so uh, I think that's kind of all the time we have left. So uh, um, do you have any final thoughts you want to wrap up in terms of our, our discussion so far for today? I think just the most important message that Indigenous futurism gives us is it offers us visions of the world from Indigenous perspectives. And these are worlds that are embedded with Indigenous culture and knowledge. Um, we know that Indigenous futurism utilises ideas from science and speculative fiction to conceptualise a world that encapsulates Indigenous perspectives and aspects of Indigenous cultures, beliefs and history. I think Indigenous futurism is a world away from historical colonialism, perhaps a world of alien colonisation, which we see in Terra Nullius, or a world of supernatural abilities. And what I personally like a lot about Indigenous futurism is that it is a way of exploring the present and even the past by looking at the future. And this is a future that gives us hope for a world that's free of racism and discrimination in which we are diverse but connected by our humanity. And I think that that's one thing that this no these two novels come back to, this connection by humanity. Excellent. Great. Thank you for sharing your wonderful knowledge of these two novels and this wonderful, fascinating genre. And thank you, everybody, for listening. Thank you for all your thoughts, Jimmy, and thank you, everyone, for listening.